Tonight on Ithaca Now, we'll hear how community members and the local justice system treated an incident that occurred on April 6th, 2019. But then when I, you know, when I left in the morning, I, you know, I walked away and I was like, wow, I really, you know, they made me feel like I really did a bad thing. I really shouldn't have done that. We'll listen to the fourth part of Six Degrees, our series on human connection. We'll camp out on the beach. So we did, and uh, and that's all I remember clearly because uh, we were attacked by a gang. And we'll hear about the history and stigma around cemeteries. We know we're going to have pay taxes and we know we're going to die. All that and more tonight on Ithaca Now. Good evening and welcome to Ithaca Now. I'm your host, Lily Dearworth. Thank you for joining us. For tonight's show, WICB News Director Bridget Bright takes a closer look at how a local woman's felony charges were dropped after public outrage. We also have a new installment of our Six Degrees series that takes a look at local connections between individuals. And we'll hear about the history and stigma around cemeteries. But first, we'll turn to Phoebe Harms and William Strelekis with this week's Community Beat. TCAT's one-day farmer's market route has the potential to become a permanent part of bus lines. The route took riders from Cornell and stopped at a couple points in the city before arriving at the market on its hour-long trip. TCAT hopes that it can add this route to its lineup full-time in spring 2020. New York State Attorney General Letitia James announced this week that Tompkins County will receive a $900,000 grant from the Community Lands Trust's Capacity Building Initiative. This initiative focuses on generating affordable housing in the state by renovating older properties and providing assistance to lower and middle class homeowners. Ithaca Neighborhood Housing Services will receive the grant and put the money towards the construction of two new developments that will provide 18 new affordable homes. The town of Ithaca is looking to fill several open spots on various city boards. While experience is preferred, it is not necessary to apply. If you would like an application to join one of the boards, you can contact Town Clerk Paulette Rosa at 607-273-1721. Get your wands at the ready. Ithaca's Wizarding Weekend is returning for a fifth year with especially interactive events spreading over three city blocks and including magic-inspired games, live performances, costumes, and contests. This year, Wizarding Weekend is including an augmented reality feature as part of the festival, so participants can use an application to complete their own set of assigned quests and realistic magical activities. Ipica's Sidewalk Improvement Program's latest initiative will help keep the city informed on future projects. An interactive website was launched to help detail work the program will do in 2020, as well as showing past plans. The sidewalk improvement program went into effect in 2014 and it has helped repair 156 blocks of sidewalks in the city. It replaced the previous policy of having each individual property owner be responsible for the sidewalks in their space. Ithaca's sidewalk improvement program's latest initiative will help keep the city informed on future projects. An interactive website was launched to help detail the work the program will do in 2020 as well as showing past plans. The sidewalk improvement program went into effect in 2014 and has helped repair 156 blocks of sidewalks in the city. 
It replaced the previous policy of having each individual property owner be responsible for the sidewalks in their space. The Tompkins County Legislature announced they are officially allowing the use of rifles during deer and bear hunting season. The decision was close with an 8-6 vote and in turn lessens hunters' restrictions on guns during this three-week period. The resolution states that there is no public safety reason to limit the use of rifles during the season and that it will not likely increase the amount of guns in the county. The law will be re-examined in two years to assess its impacts. For William Strelekis, I'm Phoebe Harms, WICB News. Welcome back to Ithaca Now on 92 WICB. I'm your host, Lily Deerworth. It's been a few weeks since the district attorney announced that all charges against Rose DeGroat have been dropped. This developing story has been playing over the last seven months, and recently, the outcome has come into view. Previously on Ithaca Now, we covered what happened in the early morning of April 6, 2019, according to the police body camera footage that has been provided by the city of Ithaca. We reported that police saw Kaji Ferguson, a young black man, punch a middle-aged white man in the commons. We also reported that police officers on the scene stepped in immediately tasing Ferguson and holding down his friend, Rose DeGroat. Since then, and since that altercation in April, community members have actively protested the arrests of Kaji Ferguson and Rose DeGroat. We have heard new developments recently on what happened during the altercation that led to the arrests. In late August, Kaji Ferguson was found not guilty of disorderly conduct in a bench trial. Witnesses in court testified that Joseph Ming, the white man involved, shoved Ferguson and his friend Rose DeGroat before Ferguson struck him. Ithaca City Court Judge Scott Miller said the prosecution did not prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Ferguson participated in a fight on the Ithaca Commons with intent to create public inconvenience or alarm, or with reckless disregard for the possibility of creating public alarm. He also said the prosecution did not prove that Ferguson was unjustified in striking the defendant. Directly after the incident, DeGroat was charged with two counts of felony second-degree attempted assault and resisting arrest, a misdemeanor. Tompkins County District Attorney Matthew Van Houten reduced her charges one month later to a misdemeanor obstructing governmental administration charges and the misdemeanor resisting arrest charge. Then, in June, DeGroat's charges changed to two counts of felony second-degree attempted assault, one count of obstructing governmental administration, and one count of resisting arrest. DeGroat has continued to plead not guilty to all charges. The arrests and charges led to public outrage that brings us to today. Groups like Black Lives Matter Ithaca, Showing Up for Racial Justice, and the Multicultural Resource Center have been active in protesting against the charges that faced DeGroat and Ferguson. Last month, after the climate strike occurred downtown, some activists went to the Ithaca City Courthouse to participate in a two-hour demonstration 
and die in protests in a crowd of about 150 people. Protesters occupied the street, blocking traffic from passing right in front of the courthouse. At that protest on September 20th, Rose DeGroote and Kaji Ferguson were in attendance. Rose DeGroote decided to take the mic. I never protest called on the DA to drop all charges against Rose DeGroote and to make it known that they did not agree with the way the legal system was treating these young Ithaca residents. When I say free, you say Rose. Free. Rose. Tompkins County Judge John C. Rowley dismissed all charges against DeGroote on September 27th, seven days after the die-in protest and two days before another protest was planned to take place. The document explaining the decision to drop all charges is available to the public. It reviews what likely transpired in the incident on April 6th and says that this is a unique situation. One part says, quote, Miss DeGroote witnessed the police charge towards her friend, forcibly grab him and inexplicably taser him. She saw him collapse to the ground, unable to move. As soon as Mr. Ferguson was down, a police officer jumped on top of him. In the court's view, Miss DeGroote reacted instinctively to protect Mr. Ferguson in this fast-moving, and bewildering situation. If not for the regrettable actions of the police, she likely would not have intervened. When officers sought to restrain her, she forcefully struggled against them. Ultimately, three officers were involved in forcing her to the ground, face down. This document goes over this whole decision, which you can read online. District Attorney Matthew Van Houten and Police Chief Dennis Nair addressed the public about these proceedings at a news conference. District Attorney Matthew Van Houten shared a statement at the conference. So now that both the criminal proceedings are closed, 
uh, I am ethically free to address some of the important issues with the public. The purpose of being here today is to speak the truth. It may not fit the published narrative, but the truth is the truth, and I will not compromise my integrity to assuage the well-intentioned but misinformed community members who were told a story that was not based in reality. He addressed misunderstandings about the case. Making those decisions, I spoke to many people who had many different perspectives. I listened to all of them. Ultimately, in trying to find a just result, the more information I can gather about an individual or, or individual human beings, the better equipped I am to try to make the right decision. And the right decision is invariably one that will leave some people happy and some people angry. But no one, not the police, not the mayor or common council, and not the public dictated my decisions in this case. And I take full responsibility for them. This was an extremely complicated case, legally and factually. Now, one of the major issues in this case from the beginning was the complaint that an older man committed a sexual assault and was then treated favorably by the police. This is the same individual who was struck, uh, who the police witnessed being struck by someone, by a young man after a running start. At first, the claim was that the older man groped the female, the young woman who was arrested in, in this case. And you can find that claim in many of the stories published by the press and posted on social media. But that claim wasn't true. Then the narrative changed. A different young woman was alleged to have been groped by this older man. The public demanded an investigation into that sexual assault. If there had been any evidence whatsoever to support charges against that older man, we would have filed charges and prosecuted him. No one ever came forward and said they were groped. Without that evidence, it's impossible to file criminal charges. On several occasions, my investigator attempted to speak with the young lady, the second young lady who we learned later was alleged to have been the victim of groping. He went to her house three times. She refused to cooperate. In open court, I asked for the defendants, the young woman's cooperation in the investigation of the groping. Her attorney emphatically refused. All the while, both of these young people knew from the beginning that no sexual assault had ever happened. This is not my opinion. This is from the testimony of the young man and his brother in open court in city court. They testified that the older man did not grope or touch inappropriately or sexually anyone, contrary to the narrative that had been repeated and published in the media, and that they allowed, these two defendants allowed to be repeated over and over again as a justification for their actions. Ben Houghton also said later on, that he has and will continue to communicate with the anti-racism groups that have been defending Ferguson and Grote. For WICB News, I'm Bridget Bright. Six degrees of separation is the idea that all people are six or fewer social connections away from one another. To explore this idea in the small city of Ithaca, 
WICB correspondent Sarah Hobakowitz picked up a telephone book, flipped to a page, and interviewed a random member of the community. From there, connections developed, and so did a project. Here is the fourth episode of this series. Six degrees of separation is the theory that we're all only six introductions away from anyone in the world. Paired with my belief that everyone has a story, I wanted to find the six degrees of Ithaca, New York, and see how connected we all really are. The theory was first tested over half a century ago, and in today's both increasingly connected and polarized society, we could all use a refresher. So, after picking up a phone book and calling Mina the barber, then getting referred to Kyle the world champion wrestler, who later directed me to Megan the author, for my fourth degree, I was about to call Sherman the songwriter. Hi, Sherman. Hey, Sarah. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm okay. But before I could even start interviewing Sherman, he had a few questions of his own. Could you tell me a little bit about yourself? Anything you want to start with? Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. But first, project of yours, is this uh, some sort of thesis? What class are you in? And how do you you want to live when you're a reporter? How's your Japanese? What what do you play? I, wait, I have, I have more questions for you. Um, Wait, I wasn't through, but uh, okay, go ahead. <laughs> and where where should I start about my history? Oh, you can start wherever. And then we went back to his interview. Graduated from Cornell. Um, I had studied uh, psychology and English. I had a double major. Because I had played in rock and roll bands throughout my time at Cornell. And, uh, and I got back together with my band, and we were having a lot of fun. I ended up writing some songs that did really well we made some uh, records and i i ended up writing uh, uh about half of what i released got on the charts and wow. one song in particular became a big hit we get it almost every night every ball it's called dancing in the moonlight i don't know if you ever heard that i know the song yeah well anyway so um Imagine you're in your 20s and you're in a band and you've written a hit song and some other hits and you're traveling around the country. Um, Sounds like I a pretty good life. It's possible <laughs> to have more fun. Yeah. And so I wanted to know why everyone was dancing in the moonlight and how this song came to be. So I don't know if Megan told you. Did she tell you about my story? No. She said you have some stories to tell me, but <laughs> didn't tell me anything yeah. else. My experiences were uh, pretty interesting. It's It occurred in the Virgin Islands. We decided one day to take a sailboat um, from St. Thomas over to uh, St. Croix. And uh, I hadn't realized it, but I fall prey to seasickness very easily. <laughs> and, and both I and my girlfriend got horribly seasick. And when we got to St. Croix... Um, the rest of the guys were doing fine. We got off the boat, and I was just, you know, rolling around. and Not doing horrible. too good. They're fine. They ate, and then they said, we're going back out to the boat to spend the night. And I looked out in the harbor. I saw the masts swinging back and forth, you know, in the swell. And Adrian and I agreed we weren't going back out there. And uh, oh, no. Adrian said, well, don't worry about it. Let's just, we'll camp out on the beach. So we did, and... Uh, 
And that's all I remember clearly because uh, we were attacked by a gang. There were five guys who attacked us with baseball bats. Oh, my God. They fractured my face in a number of places and my ribs and dislocated a shoulder. And, you know, just I luckily I lost lost consciousness, but I was in the hospital in St. Croix for a while. And then they had to uh, send me up to New York and re-break and reset all these facial fractures. Oh, my God. And, uh, and then I had this long period of uh, healing. And during that time, I couldn't really play in a band. I, you know, I had a pretty bad headache, and mm-hmm. life was not easy. But I, uh, I was writing verse, and one of the verses I wrote was uh, <laughs> some verses, you know, about how I envisioned a, a better world, a happier place where people were uh, uh, not killing each other, but were dancing in the moonlight. But how does one very personal song get to the top charts? Yeah, well, the real the real thing was that a bunch of the guys that I had played with at Cornell um, went to uh, Europe. They were living in a chateau in Orgeval in France, and they were uh, they were having a lot of fun uh, writing music and playing. But the real name of the band was King Harvest. Uh, my brother had. Uh, been invited by them to come over and he drummed with them briefly uh, before he went on to work with the Orleans. So when he went over to France, he taught them Dancing in the Moonlight, which they learned to play, and then they they went in to record it. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, m- I remember they were describing how they were recording in France. My friend Doc, who was the lead singer, Dave Robinson, he uh, he said, we wanted to have some you know, kind of a a little percussion track. He said, uh, they didn't have what I wanted, so he said, I found a, a brush, a toilet brush in the bathroom, which I used uh, on, the, <laughs> on the recording. <laughs> and, uh, and then that song ultimately uh, was sold to an American company. And uh, so I always felt that I was rewarded for uh, taking such a bummer and getting it up on the higher ground right? and uh, and seeing, envisioning a better world. And Dancing in the Moonlight was only one piece of Sherman and his brother's lives of musical harmony. My brother, Wells Kelly, was a drummer in a band that also did very well called Orleans. And Orleans had some hit songs, one's called Dance With Me, uh, dance with me i want to be your partner etc <laughs> anyway i mean i was very close with him mm-hmm. uh, we always loved writing together unfortunately wells uh died a rock and roll death years later he had played with bonnie raid and eric clapton and a number of bands wow. and i just I somehow didn't feel the same way about music after formally leaving the music business sherman went back to school to become a psychotherapist I enjoyed it. I did okay for a long time. I mean, I studied psychology at Cornell, and I played in a rock and roll band. I think, I think, in, in, I don't know, in any work you're involved in, you kind of are getting your PhD in psychology, you know, I, you know, from bartending to whatever. Even through his new career, and now after retirement, Sherman keeps writing on. I just, you know, I can't stop 
writing. I just love it. So that's part of my story. No, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, it is an amazing story when, when I think about it. But I still had one more important question. Is there anyone else you think I should talk to? Lots of people. I don't know. What would you like? Old, young, weird. And after some thinking, he told me about his friend Bob. Well, I have a friend named Bob. He had been in the Navy during the Vietnam War, and he was a pilot. When he got back to this area, he started up a charter, a gigantic aviation, uh, chartering uh, executive jets. And he's been all over the place flying all kinds of very uh, fancy people all over the place. And so I'd be flying forward to my next degree. It's been good fun talking with yeah, you. Yeah, thanks so much. One degree closer and one story more. For WICB News, I'm Sarah Horbakowitz. Welcome back to Ithaca Now. I'm your host, Lily Deerworth. Cemeteries. Some people see them as creepy places to avoid, while others see them as a place to pay respect to a loved one. WICB correspondent Jessica Dresch tells us more. Hey. What is your name? Lauren. Haley. Okay. Lauren, have you ever held your breath when driving past the cemetery? I have. <laughs> Why? Where, where did you learn to do this? Um, I don't know. It's just been engraved in my brain since I was a child. And what would happen if you didn't hold your breath? Then the ghosts will possess you. <laughs> do you still do this? Yep, every time I pass the cemetery. Every single time? Every single time. So, so typically whenever I drive past the cemetery, I take a really deep breath where like, I just pray for the best. Because uh, it, it, it's paying respect to the dead and it's bad luck if you breathe when you go past the cemetery. I was I think seven or eight years old whenever I learned this and I've never just not done it since. <laughs> Cemeteries are all around us. In the U.S. alone, there are 25,000. And we see them everywhere. On the way to the mall, a local soccer game, a walk to that sushi burrito food truck. But have horror movies and superstition capitalized on cemeteries in our mind? And do we see cemeteries as nothing but physical markers of our own forthcoming mortality? That they're just places of pure death? Well, I talked to some folks who scrub, study, and even dress up in cemeteries, and they seem to disagree. To them, it's the opposite. Cemeteries are actually full of life. So she's spraying the tombstone. This is with water, because mm. she's already done a lot of uh, uh, scrubbing with the cleaning agent. And... Uh, this can be pretty rewarding. The, the headstone, yeah, it's um, unfortunate. Um, Is that like a soap mixture? Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, the. Once a month, historians and cemetery enthusiasts gather to clean off old headstones in the Ithaca City Cemetery. Their attire: old blue jeans, maybe a face mask, and thick gloves. 
I talked to one of the historians, Julie Johnson, who has been cleaning the cemetery for years. Um, and the earliest uh, burial dates from 17, 1790s. So it's a lot to keep up. That's what the work of the Friends is, is to help the city uh, do the upkeep necessary. We're also in the process of trying to find uh, a headstone, um, uh, the actual location of a headstone. It's been improperly put where it is, and I, I need to find the right spot for it. Uh, is, yeah. there a, is there a name on the tombstone? There is, yeah, okay. there is. Uh, her, name is her name is Emma, Emma, uh, Emma Hance, H-A-N-C-E, and there's a wonderful database uh, on the city uh, of Ithaca's website under the cemetery that you can actually do a search and find on the map uh, where it should be located, wow. which is really helpful. Um, and sort of gives you a good general location where it ought to be. Look at the map. And exactly. That's oh. what I've been doing. And she's uh, a little bit far afield from where she ought to be. Uh, I wonder which, who misplaced her. Oh, that's a very good question, too, uh, the poor dear. So why would you say you personally upkeep the cemetery? Um, I, I love cemeteries. And... Uh, I'm not exactly sure where that started with me uh, as a historian and historic preservationist. Uh, something about the, you know, the wonder of having all this information available to you as you just walk by uh, about local history. Uh, but I like old cemeteries. They're especially uh, of interest to me. I've visited others in the United States and, uh, and overseas. Uh, and I, I hope someone is taking care of my great-grandparents. Okay, so I have to set the scene for you. It's a gray Sunday morning, and not the Jack Johnson banana pancakes kind of Sunday. It's gloomy, and it just started to rain, and I'm in a cemetery. The trees are tall, like they're personally watching over the headstones, and their color is like if you mixed old coffee and grass together. But there's something serene about being here, and as I look around, I notice I'm standing on a fairly empty lawn, like the gravekeeper just chose not to bury anyone on this particular spot. Looking on the city's website, most of the people buried in the Potter's Field, which is where we are now, uh, very near the Stewart Avenue entrance, are infants or ch small children. Um, so the Potter's Field is where people were, who were um, uh, indigent, uh, Criminals, uh, people who had no place else to be buried, no family, uh, were buried. So, the, so this specific field is called the Potter's Field. Potter's Field. So as we're standing across Potter's Field, Joe walks over. She was the first woman I met when arriving to the cleanup crew with my recorder and clunky headphones. She's funny. Like we definitely would have been friends in college. Oh, yeah. I dug up somebody. <laughs> oh, 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 how exciting. Uh, it was like total clay. So if you're anyone so like nice. me, I thought Joe literally dug up a decomposed body. Turns out she just meant she dug up a headstone that had sank in the mud a long time ago. It was cool. She cleaned it up, scrubbed dirt out of the lettering, and put it upright. Like this deceased person can see the world again. That there's more to life than just worms and rain. A few days prior, I was reading the Press Connects, and there were these articles about cemeteries not being maintained and what they mean to a community, and the author ended up being Broome County's former historian. His name's Gerald Smith. 
So I called him up and asked him a few questions to see if he felt cemeteries were really alive. Hello? Hi, Gerald. This is Jess from WICB. Hi. Hi. So, yeah, I read your pieces in Press Connects um, okay. about cemeteries and the history. What would you say to someone who doesn't know much about cemeteries? Like, what is one thing that you wish people knew about cemeteries or you want people to know about them? The, the headstones actually belong to the people who bought the plot. And it was up to them to take care of them. But, of course, there's a catch-22 in that, in that those people are dead. And they've been dead for a long time. And quite often, the, the responsibility for the care might fall on the immediate descendants, who probably also might be dead, or maybe one generation past that. And the cemetery sometimes will try to contact the family. Uh, because cemeteries, by their business model, uh, are having hard times. I mean, you figure out you've got a plot of land, you're going to divvy it up into X number of lots, you're going to sell those lots at whatever the cost is, and then that that hopefully will raise up enough money so there's a continuing fund to take care of the cemetery. But in these changing times, population has gone down, uh, cremations have gone up, uh, cemeteries are having a harder time. So, Gerald lives and breathes cemeteries. On Halloween, he even dresses up as a Victorian undertaker and gives tours of them. Now, I don't just honor the rich white Anglo-Saxon Protestant businessmen because those are full of those. I also find those that are sort of what I would call the underside of history to add a little bit more flavor to the story. And years ago, some woman at the end of the, the two-hour tour said, I just got a history lesson and I didn't know it. I said, exactly. Because by using t stories, I not only conveyed the history, but I made it interesting so it would stick in her head and realize that all those people are important in one way or another. Is there a story behind a particular headstone that has stuck with you? Wow. Um, there's a couple. The grandson of one of our founders, his wife was having an affair with a minister, and ref she refused to leave her husband for the minister, so instead the minister married her daughter. But in death, he's buried right behind her and not next to his wife. And I thought, okay, that's kind of creepy. Uh, wow. They're just normal headstones, but you have to know the story behind it. And here's another thing to think about. Remember that number I gave you in the beginning? Yeah, 25,000 cemeteries in the whole country. Well, with so many, some people think they're in the way. Yeah, cemeteries can actually be relocated. That means digging up the remains, buying new coffins and headstones, and finding a new space. But in some cases, this practice has been egregiously carried out. Take this first story, for example, Binghamton, New York, early 1900s. We had one sad situation inside the city of Binghamton. There was one they called the city cemetery. It was opened up in the 1830s, closed up around 1900, and they wanted the land for development. So they, in quote, removed the bodies to a cemetery nearby called Glenwood Cemetery, 
and paid this caretaker, this person to, he got paid for each body that he moved and to move the headstones. Well, if you found an arm, that was a body. If you found a leg, it's a body. Um, and then instead of paying attention to which body went with which headstones, he just picked up all the headstones, put them in one section, and according to him, he laid them out as they looked kind of pretty. So none of the headstones, as they are now, correspond to the actual people who are buried in the ground. Wow. And we don't we don't know who they. I mean, we sort of know the names, but it was just it was just a really bad removal incident that today uh, wouldn't be allowed. Mm, wow. Um, does that happen a lot? Like, I've never heard of oh. cemeteries just being up and moved. Does that happen now today? And, and how do they do that? It happened, it's happened a lot more in the past, especially these church cemeteries. You'd see these old churches, and there's a little churchyard cemetery next to it. And quite often, the churchyard cemeteries get closed and are removed. Um, it doesn't happen as much today. I think, first of all, we've got actual cemetery laws on the books now, which deal more with that. Uh, you'd have, because depending on the type of remains, especially if there was any Native American remains, which kicks in a whole other series of federal regulations, but there are state, state regulations for their care. Uh, but it has happened in the past. You see less of it. It just happened recently. We had a Technically, the town of Shenango, where I live in Broome County, has maintained this abandoned cemetery for years. It was up on top of a little knoll. I, I give them applause for dragging up lawnmowers and, and keeping it up. But the land was wanted for development. Now, on, on top of that, technically, they shouldn't have been maintaining it. It was a family plot. But everybody around knew and technically the, the family still has the right to be buried there and there was a big going to be a new supermarket going in well rather than remove the people the deal was the town refused to allow them they they unearthed all the remains had all the remains put into new caskets uh, they took down the knoll and leveled it off but they had they had the Binghamton University Department of Archaeology there to monitor every step. Um, so at the cost of the supermarket developer, they had to buy caskets. They removed the headstones extremely carefully. They made maps of where they were located, and they built basically on the level ground. They rebuilt the cemetery with a, a nice cast iron fence around it. All the headstones were cleaned and replaced back in their original locations. Actually, they straightened up the rows. The last incident was there was a huge oak tree stuck in the middle. They found two bodies inside the tree. The they tree found bodies inside up. the tree? The tree had come up out of the ground, and the bodies, the pine boxes they had been buried in in the 1830s and 40s had long since disintegrated, and they found skeletal remains inside the tree. So wow. They had to carefully excise those and put them sort of back together and they've been reinterred in their right location um so they they spent i'll be honest the developer had to spend a great deal of money to recreate in much better order i might add the original family plot so i mean do you think that 
you know, in a way, like, death unites a lot of people. And having these cemeteries around, although maybe people don't frequent them, it's kind of this realization that it's a physical marker in the world of, like, this will happen and, you know, this is what it will be like. Yeah, I, and I think sometimes why people don't like those cemeteries because it's just a symbol of our own mortality. But, yeah, I, the, the old axiom that there's nothing certain except death and taxes. Well, that's true. We know we're going to have pay taxes and we know we're going to die. Uh, and how the taxes we don't have as much control over death, sometimes we do, and how we take care of that. And, and you know, a lot of us, especially the historians across the state, have used cemeteries for walking tours and on certain days because it's, they're great history lessons. From what I've gathered, cemeteries are like a history textbook, but free and way more fun to read about. There are so many stories, dramas, and just weird coincidences that cemeteries should be like local green spaces, a place to relax, hang out with people, and maybe learn a thing or two. So next time you're in your car driving past one, maybe get out and walk around. Who knows? You could walk away feeling more alive than ever. For WICB News, I'm Jess. Want to hear more female artists on the Station for Innovation? Tune in to Eve Out Loud to hear a variety of female-fronted music. Sunday nights at 8 on 92 WICB. That's all we have for you for this edition of Ithaca Now. You can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org, and if you'd like to listen to past broadcasts, subscribe to us on the iTunes podcast store. And before we go, we have some thank yous for tonight. Manager of Television and Radio Operations, Jeremy Menard. Our Station Manager, Peter Champelli. News Director, Bridget Bright. Production Director, Jay Bradley. And Managing Director, Jacqueline Agaghigian. And our Correspondents, Sarah Hobakowitz and Jessica Dresch. All the music from our show comes from Dr. Dundith, hailing from Louisville, Kentucky. Thank you for joining us, and have a wonderful week. I'm Lily Deerworth, and you've been listening to Ithaca Now on 92 WICB.